Ladies and gentlemen, from time to time, radio programs of vastly individual and divergent types. As far as I'm concerned, this project is a lot more important than that cosmic ray bomb they're testing out in the Pacific tonight. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program. Ah, an interesting piece of news. Start beating those signals, Mark. I might as well tell you the whole story. Here is your host and master of ceremonies. And welcome on in, folks, to the next episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Keevil, and as usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Uh, please do head over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And let's get rocking. We got another packed episode for you this week. A couple great interviews. Uh, as you might have seen in the title, our focus this week is trends in junior mine financing. So that's right. We're talking about the venture exchange. We're talking about IPOs. We're talking about trends in venture capital. Uh, and this week, I got a couple great interviews. First, I have uh, PWC's Canadian mining leader, Liam Fitzgerald, joining me by phone to talk about uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers Junior Mine 2017 report. Uh, so we're going to be digging into uh, some statistics on mine finance in the junior sphere, talking about venture capital, uh, what PwC has seen in terms of the trend lines moving into 2018, uh, and talk a little bit about that report. And uh, I'll dig into some numbers in a little bit, uh, just uh, in terms of what PwC has sort of bullet pointed as the major trends that they have identified uh, in their uh, most recent annual report. Then, uh, during our sponsorship spotlight, I have another in our interview series from the Progressive Mind Forum. Uh, this week, I'm sitting down with Lisa Davis, uh, CEO of Pear Tree Securities, to talk about charity flow-through financing. Uh, and Lisa will talk to me a little bit about uh, the corporate social responsibility angles. We'll talk about diversity on boards of directors and uh, sort of incentivizing companies to maybe broaden their horizons in terms of hiring practices. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the sort of junior landscape and uh, what the majors investing in juniors might mean and what it has meant for Pear Tree. Uh, so Lisa, we got a great 13-minute segment with her as well. So this week, if you're interested in junior finance, this is your show. We'll be talking a lot about the venture markets, what's going on and what you can expect heading in to 2018. But first, let's surf on over to our news and notes for the week, touch a little bit on macro and global events, and our commodity prices. Uh, gold was trading at $1,279.40 per ounce at the time of recording, while silver was at $17.03 per ounce. Meanwhile, copper was at $3.06 per pound, while zinc was at $1.46 per pound. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was trading at $55.55 at the time of recording. On the global front, China's economy reportedly dialed back its expansion in October, according to Bloomberg, as a campaign to, quote, manage credit risks took hold and the Communist Party signaled a less stringent approach to hitting growth targets. China's industrial output rose 6.2% from a year earlier in October versus a median projection of 6.3% and September's 6.6%. Meanwhile, retail sales jumped 10% from a year earlier versus an estimated 10.5% and 10.3% the prior month. That should 
should be noted, it is the slowest pace in a year for China's retail sales expansion. Fixed asset investment in China, excluding rural households, rose 7.3% in the first 10 months of the year over the same period in 2016. This roughly matched economists' forecasts. Chinese government bonds extended their decline Tuesday, reflecting concern over Beijing's deleveraging campaign, with 10-year yields hitting 4% for the first time since 2014. Meanwhile, back at home, the Canadian dollar was up against its broadly weaker U.S. counterpart as worries over a planned Republican tax overhaul pressured the greenback lower. Uh, The U.S. dollar remained depressed as investors wait for any signs of compromise on U.S. tax policy after Senate Republicans unveiled a plan last week that would cut corporate taxes a year later than a rival House of Representatives bill. Uh, The loonies gains were, however, held in check as investors turned their attention to the resumption of renegotiations on the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, This would mark the fifth round of talks on NAFTA, uh, which are due to be held between November 17th and 21st in Mexico City. So we'll be uh, keeping our eyes peeled on those talks. Uh, But that pretty much wraps up our macro for the week. Uh, We'll hop on over to uh, PwC's Junior Mining 2017 report, and I'll sort of set the stage here for my chat with PwC's Canadian mining leader, Liam Fitzgerald. Now, the theme for PwC's 2017 annual junior mining report is confidence rekindled. Uh, And uh, what they've uh, observed is sort of a cautious recovery in the junior venture capital sections of the mining industry. Uh, PwC noted that cash poured into the sector, quote, as investors embraced greater risk and some of the major mining companies turned to junior players to help replenish their reserves. But investors' enthusiasm for the sector remains selective at this point, suggesting the market has hasn't fully recovered from the downturn. In terms of a few headline stats here, PwC noted that the aggregate market cap of the top 100 junior mining companies on the venture by market capitalization hit $12.2 billion at the end of June. That is up 7% from the $11.4 billion total registered 12 months earlier. Uh, The combined valuation, PwC notes, has now returned to a level not seen since 2010. The group did, however, significantly underperform compared to the TSX venture market as a whole, which gained 33% in the 12 months at the end of June. Good news on the treasury side, though, as cash balances of the top 100 venture companies increased by 74% during the 12-month period, reaching $1.57 billion. That total is the largest amount in the last five years, thanks to healthy jump in equity financings and greater caution among recipients about using the funds appropriately. I love, I love that. It's a very polite way of saying that. Greater caution among recipients about using the funds appropriately. Don't waste money. Anyway, that's, that's what PwC is saying. Uh, but we'll dig into these themes and many more in my interview with Liam Fitzgerald, PwC's Canadian mining head. I uh, will also talk about uh, the green energy or technology metals uh, markets yet again. PwC did note it in their report. It is a new and emerging business segment. Uh, they also noted Cobalt 27. We had Anthony Maluski, the uh, CEO and chairman of Cobalt 27, on last week to talk about EVs and electric vehicles and also the green 
clean energy revolution. Uh, so uh, PwC also noted it largely because of Cobalt 27's enormous $200 million IPO. Uh, we also talk about a couple other IPOs. I'll be covering these in subsequent podcasts, uh, If, but uh, I'll give you a little sneak peek here. Uh, I had an interview with Eero Copper Management last week. They just P- IPO'd a uh, major copper deal with a production facility in Brazil. Very interesting. Uh, I was talking with John Cumming, our editor-in-chief, about the last time we remember base metal uh, IPOs on the uh, venture in Toronto exchanges. And we're like, I can't really remember when the last time somebody IPO'd something, sort of fresh hopped it, and uh, it wasn't really, you know, spun off a major or something like that. Uh, so there's also uh, another was Zinc IPO, Titan Mining, which is uh, looking at restarting a facility in New York. So we've seen a couple base metal IPOs in the last couple weeks uh, that sort of uh, underpine and uh, justify that sort of base metal rally we've been hearing about heading into 2018. So very interesting stuff. But now to uh, talk about all those things and many other great topics, I will introduce Liam Fitzgerald, uh, the Canadian mining leader at PwC. Uh, This conversation runs just shy of 18 minutes, so we do cover a lot of ground, uh, everything from macroeconomic conditions right through base and precious metals and into the technology metal sphere. So great interview. Uh, Enjoy this one. I will be back after the break and we'll dig even further into junior mine finance. Today, we're joined by Liam Fitzgerald, PwC's Canadian National Mining Leader based out of Toronto. Liam, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. And today, we're discussing PwC's newly minted report on Junior Mining 2017 entitled Confidence Rekindled. Uh, Liam, maybe just to start, uh, uh, just some broad uh, observations or themes you noted uh, while putting the report together. Um, So the first one with cash, when you look at the amount of cash flow, Year over year, we had about two and a half billion dollars flow into the sector through equity and debt raisings, which is a like for equity in particular, it's like over 170 percent increase year over year. And the companies didn't burn through the cash as quickly as you'd expect, so they brought in two and a half billion. But by the end of June, they still had a one and a half billion on their balance sheet, so they were also being cautious. But the the volume of cash going through was remarkably higher year over year, and then. As a compartment of that, when you look at the performance of Cobalt, um, Cobalt 27, which is a story we highlighted, ended up getting $200 million through an equity offering, um, which is also remarkable because you then not only did cash flow, but it, it wasn't all to gold. Like a good chunk of money was flowing to other metals and Cobalt got a lot of interest this year. Well, that's it's interesting to me because that was one of the sort of things I noted was your top five was all kind of gold companies. And I, I it, do you think that's more of like a lag issue? Like that'll maybe be something that you'll see change over the next 12 months? Yeah, they, when you look at the top 100 overall, like you're talking 80 plus percent of the companies have exposure to gold. Um, and Toronto has always historically been very much a gold market, whether it's the TSX or the Venture Exchange. And that's why also when you look at the increase in value year over year, there was a fairly modest increase, mostly because gold kept within a tight band. But when you look at breakout stories, like you now have nine lithium companies on the Venture Exchange. There was five last year. You've got two, uh, at least one cobalt company, which rocketed up to number 10 from nowhere. Uh, which is Cobalt 27. And then you have a few copper companies coming around and a few coal companies. So even though it's predominantly gold, money is flowing to other parts of the sector, which is good. It gets a bit more diversified. And obviously, we've also heard a lot about zinc recently, right, as well. So it's been sort of, you've seen that, that resurgence in the base and industrial complex, right? 
That's right. That's right. And yet, so it's it's getting a little more diversified. It's still, whether you like it or not, still very leaning towards gold and the performance of that gold price. Um, I'm hoping that when you have a few more stories, so maybe another battery metal like copper or manganese makes its run next year and it becomes our topic of, a topic of discussion. Because then when you have a, a few more lithiums, a few more cobalts, a bit more copper, a bit more manganese, it becomes a much more interesting story and a bit more, uh, it's a stronger industry because you're relying less on that gold price. Oh yeah, for sure, and, and obviously it's a, it's a pretty serious supply and demand story for those those metals and that sort of feed that green energy complex, right? So, um, also, uh, you know, like I always look at sort of the equilibrium between exploration and the, basically the rest of our industry, development, production, etc. Um, is it sort of your feeling that exploration is seeing a bit of a firming up or or it's turning around? Yeah, if you look at across, like we produced that global report, mine, which saw that Canada was uh, had the highest exploration, exploration spend of all the um, countries in the world. So it just pipped Australia, and it's a lot more than any other country. Um, so you're finding there's more spending, but and there's still at the bottom end. You always look at the top 100. A lot of the cash they have on hand is raised for exploration. The average cash balance went from 10 to 16 million, and that's all going to go into the ground. So it's you're finding more money is being raised. It's not it's not a remarkable increase. A lot of the big equity offerings are still in respect of near develop, near production or production assets or buying of production assets. So not enough is being spent on exploration in my view, but uh, it's better than last year and it's edging upwards, but it's there's no remarkable trend here. Yeah, because it's interesting sort of correlated to that is, is I noted in your report that uh, the average market cap of the 64 explorers only went up 8% versus significantly more for, for development stage, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's the problem is that you've got um, a lot of them still relying on like the flow through share mechanism to raise their money. They're edging up and getting slightly bigger offerings. So instead of having like a $5 million offering, they're getting 10. Uh, you'd have to wonder that if the federal government ever uh, deleted the flow through share mechanism or deleted the mineral exploration tax credit, that would still have a significant impact on that sector because it would um, it would probably eliminate a lot of the money or their ability to raise that money. So the confidence in exploration still is buttressed by that flow-through share mechanism. The other thing that I noticed, you did see a little bit of an increase in IPOs. I mean, I'm not sure how much we can even use that as a bellwether for the industry anymore. But uh, what's sort of your feeling on the, the, the structure of that sort of maybe shell and IPO market that you're seeing? Well, at least it's better than last year. So in 2016, there was zero. There was no IPOs at all. So we had five this year. It got it was pretty modest. It was $40 million. But at least it gives a bit more momentum. Because uh, you also had that uh, Votorantum had its base metals arm also do an IPO um, or a partial offering of its stock, which was probably a bigger story. And that was more in the zinc base metals type space. Um, so there is new money coming in for either bigger companies doing initial offerings on larger assets or these small IPOs. So at least it's um, the canary is alive, so to speak, that there is money and there's the ability to do IPOs. It's not blockbuster, but at least it's alive. 2016, you could argue, was dead because there's just nothing. There was no IPOs at all. Well, yeah, and it's interesting. Over the last week, we've seen two. The, you probably caught them, the Oro Copper and then Titan Mining as well. So we're seeing that base metal IPO complex sort of continue the momentum as we move into 2018, hopefully, right? Yeah, that's right. I think what, I'd, what I'd like to see is if a, like there's a lot of the majors are always looking at their assets. It'd be What I'd be interested to see is if they, have a, if they do a spin out of a decent asset and that's offered on the market as an initial public offering, how that would go. Because if you had one of the, the majors in the world 
put a decent asset into a shell and do an offering, that would be the true litmus test of, of the market. Of the market, yeah. And the other uh, sort of note that uh, y- you had in the report was was that uh, trend we've all been become familiar with, where you're seeing a bit of trickle down money from the majors heading into uh, the venture. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, do you think that's going to be a major trend or, or something that's that should be highlighted moving forward? Yeah, I think it, when you look at some of the most successful companies, particularly the top five, a lot of them were bolstered by direct investment from the majors. So Barkable was probably the biggest one, where the Cisco Mining and the Cisco Gold Royalties did direct equity placements to advance their projects. Um, and also you saw Gold Corp and also Ignico Eagle making strategic investments. There, usually what's happened is the stock has improved as soon as those investments were made and more money flowed in following the initial investment. So it's it's going to be the I think it's that's good for the market, but I also think it's going to be a pattern that's going to continue. That the invest the majors won't go straight take out. They'll do that toehold investment, put some money in, see how the management team goes, and gradually uh, let their project advance. Rather than I think if you were talking five to seven years ago, they probably would have just done a straight takeout. Um, so I think that the success of many of these companies is going to rely on attracting interest from a major. But instead of just doing a straight takeout, it's going to be more of these toehold investments, gradually moving it up to like a 20% equity interest before they make a move. Yeah, and clearly the report's sort of indicative, as we all know, of how much the venture is relying on the health of equity markets. But we're sort of talking about maybe slightly alternative methods to finance earlier stage work, I mean, uh, financing from a larger company, etc. Is there anything sort of out there that you're seeing that might might help bolster the fundraising abilities of, of smaller cap companies on the venture? Um, you can see that most of the successful companies are the ones which have a good story. It's either an alternate story, like the Cobalt 27 story of coming up with a unique way of giving investors a direct access to a commodity they couldn't before. So before they arrived and first Cobalt arrived, if you and I wanted to invest directly into a Cobalt company, you couldn't. Um, So at best, you'd have a a side investment because it was just a byproduct. Um, So I think that's those stories which are attracting. So if you can, the management teams that are successful are the ones that can get a good story and good, good promotion of their asset, differentiate, and then are able to attract some major interest. So it's like the Barkerville story. Um, they probably probably weren't traveling too well a few years ago. They get interest from a Cisco, get some help, get the money in the door, and they start getting a much better trend. So it's that story. It's more it's the intangible factor that people are maximizing and are getting attracted by. So and it sort of follows with that narrative about the green energy and this new sort of industry that that we're talking about. I, I'd be interested, Liam. I mean, we hear a lot about this uh, the LME week. It was a huge conversation about these sort of new metal markets and new industrial mineral markets. Uh, from PwC's point of view, what sort of is there big differences in how you have to approach these? Is, is there sort of structural differences in how the businesses are run? It's well, it, when you're looking at those metals, it's often becoming a value chain play. So when you're looking at the precious metals, most of it's produced on site gets to a fairly pure form like Dore and then goes to the market. It's a much simpler play. When you're looking at those base metals, it, you're mostly looking at logistics becomes a much more important factor. So where is the market supply and demand uh, and how do you get that value chain going? So when you look at um, a company trying to build a mine, they really have to focus on what value they can get throughout that chain. So how do they organize the offtake? How do they organize the logistics, the transportation? How do they get the best deal? So it's going to come down to focusing more on procurement, for example. How do they make sure that they build the mine efficiently? 
how do they ensure the EPCM contract has um, got all the synergies within it? How do they get it to market more efficiently? Which is a lot more complex than gold and silver mining, which is much more about cost containment at site, getting it to getting it to market. But there's always an automatic market for precious metals because you just you can sell it straight onto the exchange. So that's going to be the new thing. So if a company is a gold miner wants to convert to be a cobalt miner, for example, it's a much more different paradigm because they have to deal with that. And I've often heard people involved in that industry say they're almost moving more away from being miners to being almost chemists or or, or a lot of, you know, alternative science plays a huge role in that. So like you're saying, there's a need for higher bench strength maybe in in certain areas, right? So that's right. Because you take, if you even look at the metallic coal market, each each ton of metallic coal is different and you have to make sure you get the science right. So it's going to be the same in all these other, each ton of cobalt is going to be different and each ton of lithium is going to be different. So they're going to have to get into, instead of it just being producing a 99.9% pure ounce of gold, which is the same, how do you promote your product as being better than other countries? Because if you're a Quebec lithium producer, how do you compete, compete against the South Americans? Now, now, Liam, it's interesting because we we're talking, obviously, uh, Cobalt sort of stole the spotlight from some of the, the earlier stories, let's say like lithium. I mean, um, is there sort of a feeling out there that lithium's getting oversaturated in terms of the venture market? Or is it, do you think it's still got the same momentum it had maybe a year ago? Um, I think it still has a momentum. So you went from having, in 2016, there was five companies on the venture exchange, which had pretty much a full exposure to lithium. Now there's nine. So this, the momentum is there. The, the key will be what happens with, like we showcased Damascus Lithium last year. What is their next step? Like they've got the momentum, they, they're moving forward with their project. It's always, I suppose, what we're waiting for is what's next. Like are they get, do, they get take, do they get taken out? Um, do, they, do they become an integration play where one of the major players like a Tesla simply buys them to secure supply and they can move forward? Or do they come up with some sort of strategic agreement? Um, with some of the electronic companies, that's that's the key. So that it's kind of that what they're they're at the point of the what next because I suspect the market won't bear twenty lithium plays um, because it's not the same as a gold play because there's automatic market for gold. It's a price play with lithium. It's it's what is once we have nine companies, the ones that are really succeeded really understand what is the next step and how do they lock in that next step to make sure that they can move on. Um, and it's difficult to see right now what that next step is. I expect it's getting tied up with one of the major players um, on a supply basis, but it's it's kind of hard to tell right now. Yeah, and, and that's sort of uh, in conversations I've had also that <laughs> they say the lithium market's probably the most poised for some sort of consolidation just because of the pure volume of plays out there and like you said just sort of the what next question so um and liam just to wrap up here i got one more question for you um i I just noted at the end of uh end of your report you had uh, an observation uh looking forward strengthening global economic conditions bode well for higher commodity prices um so i just wanted to talk a little bit about uh global economic conditions and sort of what pwc is seeing out there uh moving into 2018 for the commodity space um, a lot of it, a lot of focus right now is on how the U.S. goes, because when you look at geopolitical uncertainty, for years gone by, if you had some sort of small disaster somewhere in the world, the gold price would shoot up $100. Um, that doesn't really happen much anymore. So I think the question really is more, less, little less on political, on uh, just general turmoil and what's happened on ec- like political turmoil, which comes down to financial and economic policy. So when you look at the U.S. government, they're trying to do some what they're somewhat calling once-in-a-generation tax reform, for example. How does that affect the U.S. dollar and their 
their economy. And if people take the view that that platform, like some may take the view that platform is will destroy their economy, for example, in a very extreme view, to how, how that affects the commodity market, because then you'll have a flight to the commodities and might improve the gold price. Um, whereas when you have a strengthening Asian economy, which seems to be gathering momentum, then you'll have a stronger metallic coal price and a strong iron ore price. Um, so it seems like it's it's a push-pull between the Asian markets improving, that demand improving on the demand side, but also what's happening on that turmoil. You had Brexit um, last year, which helped boost the gold price. I think a lot of focus is going to be on the US. Like we had the first the US administration had its first anniversary trying to get through its first big reform. You'll have to see in early 2018 what that looks like, how that affects the US economy, and then how does that have a knock-on effect to the commodity prices. And it might bode well to the extent that some people think there is some safety in the commodities. And we do actually hear quite a bit about that geopolitical risk uh, buzzword these days, Liam. Uh, so maybe just to close, a, f- a few thoughts on uh, any trends or uh, impacts you've seen to that effect. Yeah, ge- geopolitical risk is on the lips of most people in that when you're looking at deals and looking where money is spent, um, politics still is at play. That's why when you see a lot of the deals and M&A activity, they're very much focusing on, for example, North America and even Canadian mining assets. Uh so it, it is very much insight, but I think when people are looking now at the US, for example, as a topic of conversation, um, when you look at some of the economic policies, it may uh, induce people to look at them again as a place to put money. Because if you have a lower tax rate, like they're dropping their tax rate down to an OECD average, uh, and they're looking at pulling down some barriers to doing business there, maybe it's some new money might start looking at the mining industry in the US because that wasn't attracting much interest in the last four or five years. I think people are at least having a bit of a look to see, is it a place to put money? But they're still just having a look. The question will be in 2018, will they actually start doing something? Yeah, and that's, I think that's the question we're, we're all hoping is answered shortly. Uh, but Liam, that was, uh, that was fabulous. That pretty much wraps up everything I had written down here. Uh, unless there's anything you'd like to add to uh, wrap up. No, I think we hit all the major points. Um, I think the key is, I think, yeah, the big stories this year are really, like, truly for the broad sector is cash. I think that's the thing we were most excited by is how much cash was flowing in and being spent. That's like, that's the market value is one thing. Um, it's all good for stock investments. But when you look at the health of the industry, that cash flow was really, really encouraging. Perfect. Well, uh, Liam, thanks again. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to touch base uh, in the near future for another update on sort of what's going on in the business. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Welcome back in studio. Uh, thanks again to Liam Fitzgerald, the Canadian mine leader at PwC, for uh, sitting down with me to chat about uh, the junior financing trends in 2017 and uh, sort of what we can expect heading into next year. Uh, and we heard a lot of those similar uh, themes and narratives, as mentioned, uh, around that sort of technology metals market, uh, what sort of impact that might have on the broader industrial complex, uh, and sort of what we can expect from uh, more traditional markets like gold, etc. Uh, so yeah, really interesting. Always great to sit down and chat with the folks from PwC. Uh, they put out a lot of great reports on the mining industry. Uh, so head over to pwc.com if you want to grab that junior trend report or uh, their larger, broader mining annual 2017 report as well. Uh, PwC does put out a lot of great data. If you are a participant or investor in the market, I suggest checking it out just to see some maybe uh, more general, broader, broader trends. Uh, sorry, in what is going on in the markets. Uh, but to continue 
our conversation on junior mine financing, I will now bring in Lisa Davis, the CEO of Pear Tree Securities. Uh, this conversation will revolve specifically around charity flow through and that mechanism, uh, how that sort of contributes to the relationship that Liam mentioned uh, between uh, majors like Goldcorp and Agnico and their investments uh, in some of the junior companies, how that sort of underpines and uh, interacts with uh, Pear Tree's business. Uh, and Lisa will also talk a little bit about diversity on boards of directors and her general observations about what's going on in terms of uh, equity financing in Canadian markets. Uh, so this is a great conversation. Runs, I think, just over 13 minutes. Uh, I will fire this up and be back after the break to wrap up the show. Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to The Sponsorship Spotlight. Sponsorship Spotlight. And welcome back, everybody. We are again in downtown Toronto with the Northern Miners Progressive Mining Forum. And uh, this is the next in our line of interview series. Uh, I'm joined right now by Lisa Davis, the CEO of Pear Tree Securities. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thank you, Matt. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Um, there are uh, quite a, a few intersections between uh, some of the things on my panel that focused on CSR and what Pear Tree Securities does. So. Happy to have the opportunity to uh, inform your listeners. And maybe first and foremost, uh, I guess uh, charity flow through. Um, it's uh, it's it's a word we hear a lot, and um, everyone's familiar. I think mostly in the industry with pear tree as sort of the front runner. Um, but maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar, maybe you could give us a little bit of a, a rundown on what charity flow through is. Pear tree actually was the or, or originator of charity flow through. Uh, about 10 years ago, we're coming up to our 10th anniversary, so it's it's a relatively, I guess, new financing technique, um, but it has really completely changed the landscape of financing for uh, exploration and development funding over the past number of years. So, I mean, it, it's, it's not that complicated. Um, really, all it involves from the point of view of an issuer of flow-through shares is uh, generally speaking, a private placement of flow-through shares that is subscribed to by our clients who are acquiring those shares for donation purposes. So in our back office, without sort of complicating the lives of the <laughs> other participants, our subscribers then donate those shares to charity and the charity requires immediate liquidity. So the third step in the transaction is a resale of those securities by the charity to what we call an end buyer. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, one, two, three, uh, all in a sequence of transactions that close, you know, generally in a matter of minutes. Uh, and and the, the one of the key things aside from the connection I mentioned to um, uh, community engagement and having the ability to recycle millions of dollars that are being used to fund uh, exploration and development into the hands of great charitable causes is that we've expanded the universe of potential investors in financings uh, for these purposes. You know, many people will know that a flow-through offering is really a Canadian retail product. Traditionally, there are a small group of flow-through funds, and there really weren't other um, investors that could benefit from the uh, the tax deductions and credits that are attached to flow-through shares. But by using Pear Tree's format, what we've done is we've separated um, uh, the 
the tax benefits for one agenda that goes to our donor clients and a, a flow-through share is, is only, a, it, it's a common share, so it's only a, a flow-through share by virtue of the contract with the first subscriber. So the sale by the charity to an end buyer becomes just a simple um, uh, sale of a common share and that end buyer can be any global institutional strategic investor. So we create better economics than any other flow-through transaction um, can provide. But at the same time, we've got and we've created an opportunity for issuers to reach out to good investors that they want to have on a long-term basis. And so strong hands basically on, on, exactly. on the equity. Exactly. And, and also, as you mentioned, I mean, there is definitely a, certainly a CSR component here for companies. And, and maybe if you'd want, like to talk a little bit to the effect that um, Pear Tree allows that leverage to CSR maybe a little bit. Um, I mean, that's something that we're really proud of. I mean, I come from a Bay Street background and um, you know I never would have imagined that my career that has you know still its roots in corporate finance and the mining sector would allow me to have such a, a great impact through Pear Tree in terms of, of the charitable world. Mm -hmm. So you know CSR is a lot of things, it's environmental, it's, it's community engagement and, and you know part of that is is philanthropy and giving back to the community. And we think, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're hearing a lot of great stories at the Progressive Mind Forum today about how um, we've come a long way in this industry to, you know, really recognize the need for um, good community engagement and partnerships. But we're not telling our stories very well or very loud. Yeah. And you know, and yeah. any opportunity I think that an issuer has to say that I've you, you know not not only have I engaged in a financing structure that's minimizing dilution and and you know doing the best for my company, I'm also making a conscious choice to uh, to, to to pick this over another kind of financing because I want to see the good that it can do to the community. Um, now there's a bunch of technical rules about parties being at arm's length and you can't sort of recycle money for one particular issuer into uh, you know, a, a donation that the CEO of that company wants to make in that particular community. That makes sense. But yeah. there's all kinds of ways that we've worked with our clients where you know, the, the leadership of a, an issuer is supporting a local hospital campaign or something, and so they may not be able to buy their own shares for that purpose, but they can actually be a subscriber in a different offering to be able to support the community in which they're working. So there's, there are lots of opportunities, whether it's just helpful to the company's image in general or to actually um, you know, see some positive change happening in, in a community that they want to support. And, and at least the other sort of interesting thing for me is, is obviously, as, as our listeners know, flow through is exploration, underpined by exploration spending. Um, and so I'm just wondering, um, in sort of your view from, you know, the difference between a major miner or an intermediate producer and how, and sort of how the junior market. So is, is there sort of a difference there for, for how you work with each client, or is it, is it, uh, is it pretty, pretty uniform for a pear tree? Well, our our funding has to be used for you know s 
specified category of exploration and, and some development expenditures. But having said that, we've seen a real shift in the past couple of years with some of the majors saying that they want to make direct investments in juniors to, um, you know, expand the pipeline of opportunities that they have to, uh, you know, keep keep a mill running in a certain area and that sort of thing. And so a lot of the transactions that we've completed recently have been with some of the major companies, um, you know, like for instance, a gold corp, and you know, I mean, these are publicly announced transactions. But you know, David Garuffalo at Roundup in January of this year said that Gold Corp wants to invest a hundred million dollars in junior exploration companies, yep. and uh, he's been doing that. He's you know done the company's done a, a few of those deals using Heracles um, format, and so we're seeing. You know, our, our relationship with the senior companies generally wouldn't be with them as an issuer because yeah. they they need their tax deductions. Yeah. Hopefully they need their tax deductions. Um, but we are dealing with them as investors, um, and, and that's really nice to see. And we're seeing, you know, we're, we're seeing um, different companies make uh, uh, statements um, about their agendas in terms of responsible investing and their criteria and so um, you know some some of those companies I think really like to be able to say they're taking advantage of a format that does sort of further um, community engagement and, and you know CSR goals and, and interestingly another another note uh, you, you'd mentioned to me off air um, was about um, innovation in mine finance and, and in terms of security regulators um, and I know that's that's a fairly hot topic in terms of things like the venture and and uh, they, they've taken some heat let's say over the last few few years um, so maybe if you can speak a little bit um, to um, innovations in actual mine finance and and sort of um, that messaging you'd like to to see or hear from regulators well, one of the things um, that was actually discussed on the panel that I was on a short time ago is how uh, Diversity is required for real innovation. Um, diversity in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm on the board of PDAC and we've been undergoing a five-year strategic review, which is you know, a, sort of a regular part of the, the governance of PDAC. And the, the diversity um, issue came up again and again and again in many respects. One is that the, the um, the mining industry is getting very gray. So yeah. I talk about diversity; it's in in many aspects. I mean, yeah. it's 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 a diversity of age, getting more youth representation. It's it's uh, gender diversity, um, and the Canadian Securities Administrators have just come out with their most recent report on um, uh, the disclosure that's required by TSX listed companies in terms of their policies on gender diversity and and how they're performing against those policies and it's um, it, it's it's really unfortunate that mining continues to be at the bottom of uh, the ladder in terms of performance in that area um, and in fact the um, the, the score for mining companies that reported went down in the last year in terms of the number of companies that have uh, women directors on boards, um, or the total percentage of women directors on boards rather went down 
from 13% to 9%. So that's unfortunate. Mm. And, you know, we do, I, I think we have lots of statistics to show that um, greater diversity improves results and spurs innovate, innovation. The Financial Post reported, um, now these aren't the newest statistics, but, but they reported um, in, I think, 2015 that companies uh, that have more women board members on average outperform those with fewer women, and, and these are the statistics they cited, 53% better on return on investment, 42% better on return on sales, and 66% um, better on return of invested capital. So, you know, we've got all kinds of research that supports this, but we're not seeing it. And my real pet peeve on this is that the requirements of the um, securities administrators is for the TSX listed companies to report. Yeah. And most exploration is conducted by venture companies. And I would, you know, hazard a guess that the performance on diversity is not even as no. It's the poor performance of the <laughs> I think that's a safe, senior company. A safe assumption. Yeah. I, I don't, like I, I recognize, um, you know, being someone involved in financing this industry for quite a few years now that it's really tough out there and there's, you know, not a lot of discretionary dollars available for things. But this is, this is something we can push forward without asking people to spend a lot of money. It's just, you know, making a commitment thinking it through, developing a policy, and things as simple as, you know, if I have to replace a director, I'm going to insist that somehow I, um, you know, I search for a, a, a group of potential candidates that includes at least one woman. It's not, you know, it's, it's not that difficult. It really is a matter, I think, of, of a commitment to making a difference, and it's going to help these companies perform better. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. Um, and yeah, but Lisa, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us today. Once again, this has been Lisa Davis, CEO of Peartree Securities. Thank you, man. Thanks again to Lisa Davis, the CEO of Pear Tree Securities, for joining us to talk about charity flow-through financing and general trends in junior markets. If you'd like to learn more about charity flow-through and what it might be able to do for your corporation, head on over to PearTreeSecurities.com. So that pretty much wraps up our show for the week. Just a couple of public service announcements to finish us off. Uh, as I've noted the last couple of weeks, I will be up in Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory this coming Sunday, November 19th, to talk about investment at the Geoscience Forum. Uh, so we will be covering a lot of the topics you hear on the podcast, more than likely, including technology metals, the state of gold markets, uh, and the state of junior financing markets. Uh, so I'll be up there on a great panel with uh, a few other awesome newsletter writers and journalists uh, to talk about uh, Yukon investments specifically, but also general markets uh, and what we're seeing out there. Uh, so we'll hear a lot of these same topics uh, we've been covering in recent weeks, including uh, the green uh, economy, innovation, uh, things like that. So it should be a great panel. If you're up uh, up in Whitehorse, please do stop by the event, uh, say hi, uh, and uh, I should be walking the floor as well. So uh, hopefully I'll see you up there. Also, as I have uh, mentioned, I will be returning as the master of ceremonies for the CI 
AIM Student Night on November 23rd in downtown Vancouver. Uh, so do check that out as well. Hop on over to my Twitter. You, should pro- you can find the Eventbrite link for CIM Student Night. Uh, and uh, think about joining us there as well. Uh, it's always a great evening. Uh, the keynote speaker this year is Ron Hosschein from Lundin Gold. And he will be talking about building a mining industry in Ecuador. Uh, and Ron's always great. Uh, tons of industry experience. So I'm sure that'll be a great keynote. So we're all looking forward to that. And as always, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and check out all the Northern Miners' great social media accounts. Uh, and please do consider subscribing. Uh, it's Again, it's just over $200 a year, and that gets you the full deluxe pizza. That's right, all the online content plus in paper. Uh, and you also get access to our Canadian Mines Handbook, which is a great compendium up to date on all the mining properties globally. Uh, so do consider uh, signing up with us. It's great, and you get a lot more in-depth coverage. Plus, if you do have a moment, pop open that iTunes account and please do rate our podcast because that helps us out a ton um, and uh, will keep us powering forward with more great material for you, the loyal listener. Uh, but this has been the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Matthew Keevil. Thanks again so much for joining us and I will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.